2: Welcome to SpyCast. My name is Dr. Andrew Hammond, historian and curator here at the International Spy Museum in Washington, D.C. Every week, SpyCast explores the world of intelligence and espionage by bringing you in-depth conversations with spies, spy masters, intelligence officers, and authors. We explore the stories, secrets, tradecraft, and technology of a world that looms beneath the surface of everyday life. Welcome to this week's episode of Spycast Spy Satellites Space Surveillance. This week, we look at an organization whose existence was only declassified in 1992. The National Reconnaissance Office, or NRO as it's more popularly known, are 60 years old this year. I sat down with NRO historian Dr. James Outson to discuss, well, Their history. (laughs) To To me, the NRO are fascinating because they're the agency that designs, builds, launches and maintains America's intelligence satellites. If you've ever wondered what is up there, no, I mean way up there, this might just be the episode for you. You're not as unfamiliar with satellites as you would think, though. For starters, you're on one. The Earth is a satellite of the sun. The Moon is a Satellite of the Earth. You get the general idea. Hope you enjoy. Okay, so it's a pleasure to be joined this morning by Dr. James Outson from the National Reconnaissance Office. So I wonder just to begin, James, could you tell the listeners a little bit more about who you are and about how you ended up doing what you're doing?
0: Oh, yes, absolutely. It's really a pleasure to be with you today and uh, appreciate the chance that we'll have to talk a little bit about uh, the National Reconnaissance Office and where we came from and where we're headed uh, as an organization. I've worked at the National Reconnaissance Office for about a decade and a half now. I'm actually a CIA employee and the NRO, or National Reconnaissance Office, is staffed by officers from Central Intelligence Agency, from Department of Defense, Uniform Services, and a cadre of DOD employees. So about 20 years ago, I took my first assignment at the NRO. It was a fascinating place to work, and I've had the opportunity since to come back and serve as the historian for about a decade and, and now oversee uh, a center there that's responsible for historical studies, lessons learned display of artifacts sharing of artifacts like we have done with the uh, spy museum and and other outreach kinds of activities Uh, so that's what brought me to the organization it's been a real privilege in my life to have this opportunity
2: for our listeners could you just sketch out what the nro is and what it's all about help our listeners get their heads around the nro
0: yeah be happy to do that Actually, the NRO was established, it'll be 60 years ago on uh, September 6th of of this year. So we're celebrating our 60th anniversary. And over those 60 years, we've had responsibility for end-to-end development of the National Reconnaissance Satellites, uh, commonly referred to as spy satellites. So the NRO was established back in 1961 with the express purpose to bring together reconnaissance satellite programs that were originally housed within the Central Intelligence Agency, the Air Force, and the Navy. And at the time, there was a recommendation to consolidate those programs into a single organization that could really be focused on developing reconnaissance systems. And not only developing them, seeing them through the launch, and then continuing to operate them. And that makes us a little bit uh, different uh, when you look at the development of space technology in a national security setting. We not only, and this is true today, continue to uh, do the R&D for satellites, we're responsible for building the satellites, for seeing them through to launch, and then operating them after their launch. So we have that end-to-end responsibility, and the systems themselves give us capabilities to both image, so imagery satellites, and then to listen, or signals collection satellites, uh, where we intercept uh, communications and then other kinds of signals as well. And what this architecture, this national reconnaissance architecture, has always done is it allows us to see more, to hear more, to get more pieces of the puzzle that we put together to understand an intelligence problem or an intelligence issue bring those pieces of the puzzle together and present them to decision-makers through finished intelligence and allow those decision-makers to make better decisions. They have information. If you go back to the beginning of the National Reconnaissance Agency, Eisenhower uh, was president in the 1950s and, uh, of course, he had led our efforts in World War II. And one understanding that Eisenhower had is that intelligence information was critical in making better decisions. With the uh, Soviet Union in place, we we didn't have a lot of opportunities to gain insight into Soviet capabilities, and Eisenhower knew that needed to change, and he became an advocate for, first, as you know, with the U-2 program going under development, and then later with the development of reconnaissance satellites. And the sole purpose, and these are his words, to avoid another Pearl Harbor and make sure that we didn't have a surprise, again, of that magnitude because of a lack of intelligence information, and he became a prime mover, a prime supporter of intelligence programs, and in particular, satellite reconnaissance programs. We can't talk about current capabilities. Those sources and methods, as they're called, are still classified, but we can talk about the use of satellite reconnaissance technology in the past that is outdated, and that allows us to declassify the technology and, and tell the story. So, I can give you an example of where our reconnaissance systems have made a difference. After the uh, launch of Sputnik in October 1957, of course, the nation was uh, gripped by this Soviet satellite that had been launched, and the primary concern, as you know, in the national security setting was that if the Soviets could put an object into space, they could certainly now have the capability to launch a nuclear weapon against the United States. As a consequence, uh, the U.S. government reexamined uh, its investment in, in missile technology, launch technology, satellite technology. And as part of that uh, review, it's an interesting little uh, episode that occurs. Lyndon Johnson, who was a majority leader of the Senate at the time, also retained uh, chairmanship of the Senate Preparedness Subcommittee. And that subcommittee took up the examination of this question of Soviet capabilities. Now, one of the conclusions of the subcommittee, and Johnson went out to describe this to the public, is that the Soviets perhaps had advanced their capability to develop long-range nuclear weapons, uh, intercontinental ballistic missiles, much more quickly than the United States had. And at the time, it was called a missile gap, that they were outpacing us and there was a gap between us and the Soviets. Up until we launched our first successful photo reconnaissance satellite, Corona, we did not have concrete evidence of whether or not the Soviets actually had more ICBM capability than us. But within a couple of months of the first corona launches, we were able to have concrete evidence that that missile gap uh, did not exist. And I'd like to share just a little uh, experience that I had with interviewing the first director of the uh, National Reconnaissance Office, uh, who was at the Department of Defense when this Missile Gap debate was going on. During the 1960 election, John Kennedy and Richard Nixon were beating each other up in their debates and out on the stump over this question of whether the Soviets had really outpaced us. And Dr. Joseph Cherick, the first director of the NRO, had an opportunity when Kennedy was elected to actually go in. and brief the new president-elect about the status of the missile gap. And Cherik uh, told me this is what happened when he sat down with President-elect Kennedy. He said, Mr. President-elect, I know this question has come up of a missile gap, but we have concrete evidence from our imagery reconnaissance satellites to show that this missile gap does not exist. In fact, the United States is uh, really outpacing the Soviets. And the way Cherry, uh described it, he said, is uh, Kennedy sort of uh, put his head back and laughed a little bit and said, well, I guess I got that wrong, didn't I? And uh, the point being that the campaign was over, the issue wasn't, wasn't relevant really anymore when it came to being elected, and they were able to move on. But what it does show is that just within a matter of weeks, really, after the corona satellite was launched we put to rest conclusively this question, an important question, about our capabilities versus the capabilities of an adversary. And by having that information, if you're president of the United States, you can make much better decisions when it comes to your foreign policy, but also your development of your own military capability. And that's just an example. It's back in the past It was an important outcome from national reconnaissance, but the same is true today. What we are trying to do is get information that helps defend the interests of the United States and help us make better decisions as a country when it comes to investment in our own capabilities and also in how we address defense issues in the U.S.
2: I'd like to come back to nuclear strategy and arms control, but I was wondering if you could tell our listeners a little bit more about the evolution of satellites. So it might not be something that they all know a lot about. So Sputnik is up in 57. When was the first U.S. satellite in space? And was there like a a satellite race where they were trying to get the most and the best and the most technologically advanced satellites up there? Help us understand the evolution of artificial satellites.
0: Glad to talk a little bit about that. The development of Sputnik and the first U.S. satellites actually grew out of a decision in 1954 for the world to come together with uh, what was known as the International Geophysical Year. Its purpose was to understand more about the Earth, its oceans, its atmosphere, and gain more scientific understanding. Both the United States and the Soviet Union both proposed to put up satellites that would allow us to observe the uh, Earth from above, so to speak. So if you look at it within that context, in a way, Sputnik shouldn't have been a surprise when it was launched in 1957, which was the uh, international geophysical year, but it still was because they got to space before we did. We were preparing satellites as well for launch in 1957, and the initial efforts were not successful. So it really was not until January of 1958 that Explorer 1 was launched, and it was launched uh, through the Redstone Arsenal, the Army program, it was a successful launch, and it, it did something that Sputnik didn't. It, it actually collected scientific information. It allowed for the identification of the Van Allen radiation belts, uh, but that was the U.S.'s first successful launch, and I share that because, you know, this question of a race is an interesting one. Symbolically, there certainly was a race, and Sputnik won. If you speak to uh, people that were Alive in 1957, invariably, they'll talk about experiences such as going out in their backyard and scanning the horizon and looking for the glint of the Sputnik satellite. On the radio, you heard the beep, beep, beep sound of the signal coming off the satellite. But if you stand back and sort of look at it as a whole, Sputnik only, I'll say, provided sort of a propaganda win. The United States, in consistently launching its satellites, uh, we have a purpose for those satellites. And in comparison to Explorer 1, we were able to gain scientific information. And I think that the United States has continued to leverage its advantage in space in that regard when we launch with a specific scientific purpose or uh, reconnaissance collection purpose. So. You know, In short, yes, the Soviets were able to get to space first by a matter of a few months, but we were able to get into space and continue to use space as a platform for gaining either scientific information or intelligence information. With respect to the NRO, our first uh, satellite development efforts began in 1954 as well, growing out of uh, recommendations uh, from a long effort at the RAND Corporation to proposed that the United States invest heavily in reconnaissance satellites. In 1956, the uh, Air Force invested some initial funding to begin the development of reconnaissance satellites. That program originally was known, just kind of as trivia, as Weapons System 117L. It became known as the SAMOS uh, satellite program. And out of that came a satellite program, the corona program which eventually became part of the National Reconnaissance Office. Corona was the first successfully launched imagery collection satellite. It was successfully launched in August of 1956. The first launch, though, started, I'm sorry, in August of 1960, I apologize, but uh, the first efforts to launch began in in January of 1959. So we had some 12 launch failures in that period of time. And it just goes to show the complexity of developing a satellite. You have to put them up. You have to see where the problems are and work through those problems in those early years. There's no other way than that kind of experience. So that's how we got into the reconnaissance business.
2: I find it absolutely fascinating that us human beings were here on this planet that's out there in the darkness of space and a lot of us aren't really sure why we're here and we've now developed the technological capability to turn the lights off and destroy ourselves and up above us there's all of these satellites that are all around the earth and I think it would be really interesting to kind of just populate that landscape and give listeners that don't know much about this a just an understanding of what's going on so what is a satellite, and are all satellites in the sky spy satellites, or is it 50-50, or is that classified, or how has it been historically?
0: In the beginning, we were launching satellites on a very regular basis, and it really had to do with technology uh, limitations. Again, take, for example, the way that we collected uh, imagery because of technology limitations, we weren't able to digitally collect an image like we do in today's world. We had to go back to the more tried and true way of, of getting an image or taking a picture, which was on film. And the real challenge back then was uh, if you put a, a camera with film into space, how do you get the film back? And US's unique solution was to uh, have the film ejected off of the satellite in a, in a small return vehicle. That would once it came into the uh, atmosphere, back into the Earth's atmosphere, there would be Air Force planes that would capture it midair, sort of reel that film in, so to speak, and take it back to where, I guess, many Americans had their film developed, uh, Kodak Corporation, and and that's what we did. Kodak would develop that film, and we would then have images of uh, denied areas, as they were known, uh, mostly the the Soviet Union that we were interested in. As a result of having that more, I guess we'll say, a primitive way of gaining imagery, we had to put more camera systems up more frequently. So in those early years, we were launching multiple imagery systems every year. With the advent of our capability to collect digital imagery, in first in 1976, with a system that was known as the Canon system, we didn't have to rely upon as frequent of launches. Since we're able to uh, obtain a a digital image, we didn't have to have those uh, return capsules come back as we had in the past. So over time, that's allowed us to put up uh, satellites that have longer lifespans. Just to give you another quick example of that and and maybe to illustrate it, the first corona satellite that was launched in August of 1960 carried about 1,200 linear feet of film. The second generation, the more sophisticated satellite to replace Corona was known as the Hexagon system. And by comparison, it carried 60 linear miles of film or some 300,000 linear feet of film. So we go from 1,200 to 300,000 feet of film. It's a system its longest uh, mission life was about nine months versus being on orbit for a day or two with the original Corona systems. So over time, we tried to build these more complicated machines that are able to stay on orbit longer, have more capability, and allow us to have a more, as we say, persistence, the ability to have a more continuous look down or, or listen down uh, into areas that we have of interest. And I, with respect to sort of the mission of National Reconnaissance, Our responsibility is really to understand our adversaries, our competitors better. And as a result, we we don't collect intelligence uh, over the United States, on Americans, and so forth. Our purpose is really to look at those challenges that come from overseas. And that has been the case from the beginning.
2: We'll be right back after this. What's the satellite landscape like? What's the population? Is there a lot of commercial satellites up there now? Um, Just as someone that doesn't understand how this works, where are they all? How do you make sure they don't collide with each other? Who decides where they're going to go? And what's the life cycle of a satellite like? So it gets launched, it's up there. Does it stay up there until it falls down naturally or... Is it brought down on purpose? Give us a better understanding of that.
0: Yeah, as I mentioned, I really can't talk a lot about current capabilities, but we can go back into the past and use historical examples to get at some of these questions that you have. Let's take an example of the uh, hexagon vehicle, just to sort of illustrate that particular set of questions that you have. Hexagon was launched into what is known as a low-Earth orbit, Uh, so that's the orbits that allow us to fly closest to the Earth. And a hexagon system carrying that 300,000 linear feet of film would return film in four different uh, return vehicles. After those uh, vehicles came back to the Earth, that primary satellite vehicle, which was the size of a locomotive or school bus, a large school bus, if you want to think about it in those terms. still left on orbit, the camera and and the supporting equipment up there. So what do you do with that? Over time, the orbits would uh, decay and eventually the vehicle would come back into the Earth's atmosphere. What we would do though is have a controlled Deorbit of the satellite and uh, would deorbit those uh, into an unpopulated area, into an ocean area. And uh, that's what happened with those large vehicles so that they didn't uh, sort of come crashing down unexpectedly and cause harm to individuals. And that gives you a sense of how uh, satellite vehicles were controlled historically to avoid those kinds of problems.
2: Is there like a a big satellite graveyard somewhere where all of these (laughs) satellites that came back down are, or are they all classified? Help us understand what happens to them.
0: (laughs) Well, the best way to describe that or sort of help people understand is, If you think about objects that are returned to the Earth, and the National Reconnaissance Office had the very first successfully returned man-made object from space with its uh, Corona film return vehicle. When an object returns from space, it comes back through the Earth's atmosphere, and that generates a lot of heat. So if you think of something like the Apollo capsule that came back with the Apollo astronauts, on the bottom of that, there's ablated material which disperses the heat and allows the capsule to come back through the Earth's atmosphere without being burned up. For satellite vehicles, when they're deorbited, they don't have a material, ablative material, that's going to cause that to occur. So a lot of the vehicles are burned up as they come through the Earth's atmosphere. There are some large components uh, that uh, survive and Of course, those are controlled uh, and deorbited, as I said, over the oceans. So that's where they end up. What we don't have is a satellite vehicle that we've been able to uh, pick up and make it available to the spy museum to put on display as an example. (laughs) As much as we'd like to, uh, there are just uh, a lot of burned up pieces that come back down.
2: That would be a great future exhibition.
0: <laughs> yeah, if we if we were able to do that, but unfortunately, it's not the nature of the vehicles themselves. So
2: and so most of them end up in the ocean. Is that correct?
0: Yes. Yeah. Typically, that's the case now.
2: And is that always controlled so that it's close to the seaboard of the continental United States, or is there no way to control that?
0: Well, there we have had. Uh, an incident or two of uh, uncontrolled (laughs) returns of uh, space vehicles. Just to give you kind of a couple of quick examples, in the early uh, uh, test launches of the Corona vehicles, we had a film return vehicle that ended up towards the North Pole. And we think the Soviets uh, actually were able to pick that up because they had an outpost near where that vehicle came down. Another example is we had a film return capsule that ended up in South America, and a farmer found it out in his field and called their military uh, defense department, and fortunately the defense department called our embassy and we were able to recover it that way. And probably another even more interesting one is uh, when we were launching one of our early reconnaissance uh, signals collection satellite, known as the galactic uh, radiation and background satellite. Uh, we launched that out of Cape Canaveral, and at the time, the launch was over Cuba, and there was a launch vehicle failure. So some of the material came over, fell down uh, into Cuba. And of course, the Cubans protested that and claimed that there was a, a cow killed. So we have these photographs in Havana of these protests with this model of a cow out there uh, being carried. but. Uh, that was a result you know, of, a, of an uncontrolled uh, launch failure that occurred. So sometimes we do have uncontrolled returns in those early days, but for the most part, they're controlled returns into, again, areas where people aren't going to be at risk.
2: And give us an understanding of the contemporary or historical satellite landscape. Who are the main players? So, for example, during the Cold War, was it really just... The United States and the Soviet Union that were doing this, an exclusive club for advanced and industrial nations, or is it kind of like a, a mixed picture? Give us a, a better sense of that.
0: Yeah. Back at the beginning of the NRO, certainly it was primarily the United States and uh, the Soviet Union that were involved in successfully launching uh, space vehicles. And, and the reason is it required Incredible technological capability and significant investment of national resources to get into space. And it still does. It's an expensive undertaking. And consequently, the Soviet Union and the United States were the two countries that really had those kind of uh, capabilities to figure out how to build reliable launch vehicles and build satellite vehicles that would work in really very harsh environment in space where you have extremes of heat and cold that you have to come up with materials that with, can withstand tensions there, you need to have that scientific base that can uh, address those issues and resolve those issues. So in the beginning, the space race was really between the United States and the Soviet Union. I'm not sure I'm the best person to speak to today's uh, you know environment. I focus a lot on the past and uh, we look at the history of space. But certainly you can see in today's world, we have a much more diverse launch capability. We're launching out of places commercially around the world, and many nations around the world are able to launch uh, vehicles and have vehicles develop. So over the uh, oh, 60 or so years that we've had a successful space program, it certainly has become much more of an international effort.
2: What are some of the main purposes that satellites have been used for historically, signals, intelligence, communications, photographic intelligence, are those the main ways that they're used for communications and for imagery? Or are some of the James Bond movies onto something when you see a sort of laser coming from a satellite and zapping the earth? Is that completely fantastical? Or can they be used as weapons? Yeah,
0: so... Maybe a way to think about this, Edwin Land, who was president of Polaroid Corporation, had significant influence when it came to the United States' decisions to go into space. And he became a real advocate for the development of reconnaissance satellites. Of course, Land was an incredible uh, inventor. At the time, held U.S. patents, second only to Edison, actually. So this really phenomenal creative mind was in the background advising presidents of the United States, beginning with Eisenhower, uh, really th- uh, through most of the remainder of his life, on let's go to space, let's utilize space. And at one point, he came up with a way to phrase this to presidents and, and others. He said the, something along these lines, the purpose of what we're trying to do here is to see it all, see it well, and to see it now. And That illustrates, in the beginning, we were really thinking about imagery in a significant way, uh, trying to obtain images of the Earth of what were known as as denied areas, uh, where we just didn't know what was going on behind that uh, Iron Curtain that uh, Churchill described uh, in Missouri when he spoke to Americans. We wanted to see over that Iron Curtain. It also became imperative that we not only be able to see what's going on in these denied areas. but that we're able, I guess you would describe it as listen, intercept communications, but also pick up other kinds of signals that would tell us what was going on in those denied areas or behind that iron curtain. So we not only wanted to peer over the iron curtain, we wanted to listen behind it as well. And as a consequence, we developed satellites that both obtain images and allow us to pick up signals and build what we would call a constellation that is integrated and works together to understand what our adversaries and our competitors are doing. Our current director, Dr. Scalise, has has sort of fine-tuned the words of Dr. Land. His view is we need to observe it all, observe it well, or observe it now, and innovate faster. And that just shows the evolution of the constellation from an early Focus on obtaining images to having an integrated architecture that allows us to come up with a more comprehensive set of information or intelligence. You know, intelligence is always about, again, putting pieces of a puzzle together. And you never quite get all of the pieces in that puzzle. You get as many as you can and then try to ascertain what that picture is. And reconnaissance satellites allow us to do that in a highly effective way.
2: I'm just thinking about like this interview, we're discussing the 60th anniversary of the NRO. As a non-American and as a historian, it's always interesting to me that when you're studying American intelligence, it's much easier than for almost any other country because there's just more of a public face to all of this. So I guess one of the questions as a for you as a fellow historian is Do you think that the NRO or other American intelligence agencies are undercut by the need to have a a public face and to justify to the public the types of things that have been done on their behalf? Do you see that as like, well, it's not ideal, but it's the price of doing business? Or do you think that democracies like the United States or, or countries that are more open about this type of stuff, do you see that as an advantage that they may have? when it compared to, say, a country like China or North Korea or one of these other countries?
0: Well, we have an obligation uh, here in the United States when information no longer warrants classification to declassify it. And we take that obligation very seriously at the National Reconnaissance Office. And as a consequence, over the past several years, we've declassified a lot of historic systems. Uh, You know, I've talked about Corona. Hexagon. We also have uh, the Gambit system, which took some of the best resolution, clearest imagery from space, beginning back in 1963. We declassified the fact that we had an early experimental satellite that allowed us to process radar data into imagery. We declassified our GRAB satellite and, and follow-on Poppy system, which are signals collection. Recently, we've declassified uh, additional signals collection efforts, uh, experimental satellites that allowed us to look at uh, different signals challenges. And uh, we'll continue to declassify and hope this year or early next year to tell a little bit more about these satellites that were developed. And the reason is, by law, Americans have a right to know where their tax dollars are being spent unless there is a national security need. And once that national security need goes away, we have that obligation to Americans to, uh, to share with them uh, what we can from a declassification perspective. So we do it for that purpose, but we want to advocate for the what we call the discipline in national reconnaissance. There are people that are interested in the stories and, and how these things came about, and there are really important reasons for that. If you look at the development of technology as a problem, and how to do it more effectively and more efficiently, as an example, there are no better case studies than the development of these reconnaissance satellites. And by sharing these histories of the challenges that came from getting into space, hopefully it allows people who have similar challenges in developing new technology to do it more effectively. So we sort of have that ethical obligation to a scientific community as well. And there are other obligations we have, like with the declassification of the corona program. The primary driver for that was so that we could share with the world this treasure trove of imagery of the earth when questions of climate change came up. And the only way to make that imagery available, which had been collected over a 12-year period of time, was to declassify the system. And of course, when it was declassified, we weren't using film return anymore, we moved into the digital era. There was really no reason to keep it classified. And what that allows is a database uh, to be made available for scientists to understand a problem like climate change. And the same reason that uh, the KH7 imagery from the early Gamba system was declassified. So those are the ethical obligations that we have from a technological perspective, a legal perspective. And also from just practitioners of history as well. I think it probably strengthens our organization in terms of being able to reach out to key partners and companies that may be interested in doing business with us, but also to the public who just have an interest in what we do and who we are. We tell what we can, in other words.
2: For those of us that maybe done some of this in high school, but have forgot it, Tell us, what's the definition of space? And you mentioned that some satellites are closer to Earth than others. Help our listeners understand, are certain satellites placed in different distances away from the Earth, or is it happenstance, or is it planned? Give us a better understanding of that.
0: Yeah, that's a great question. Now, as I mentioned earlier, our imagery satellites would fly in a low Earth orbit, so they're closest to the Earth, and the early satellites would fly somewhere from 90 miles above the Earth to about 150 miles, just depending on the mission. Is that considered space? That's definitely considered space at that point. We also launch satellites into other orbits, uh, into a geosynchronous orbit, where the satellite actually orbits in conjunction with the Earth. So it allows the satellite to basically be placed. So it's, uh, I'll say, looking down at a very specific part of the Earth, it doesn't move around the Earth. In other words, it just orbits at the same pace as the Earth turns. And then we have a third orbit that we fly in, which is known as a highly elliptical orbit. So at one point, it's flying very close to the Earth, and then the ellipse pulls it much farther out. And as it's farther out, it gives it a, a longer time over portions of the Earth. So. There are different orbits that we place satellites into, and there are different reasons for placing those satellites into those orbits, and it has a lot to do with how much of a persistence or a continuous coverage that you want to have. You know, and up until the launch of Starlink and other kinds of communication satellites that are coming up, if you look at communications satellites, they typically were put into a geosynchronous orbit because it allowed a signal to bounce from the Earth up off the satellite and down to the other another portion of the Earth. So, you know, communications typically used uh, geosynchronous orbits in the past, and of course that's changing now as we have these new architectures that are put up with multiple low-Earth orbit satellites that will pass the signal from one satellite to another. So times are changing in that respect as well. Historically though, we would launch into LEO, GEO, and HEO as the three orbits were are sort of known, low-Earth, geosynchronous, and highly elliptical.
2: And the highly elliptical is the furthest away from Earth?
0: Well, highly elliptical, its advantage is at one point you're able to be near the Earth, but because of an ellipse, you're able to fly out much farther away from the Earth. So it has both uh, the capability to be near and far from the Earth. To explain it to your uh, listeners, think of it this way. As an ellipse that goes around the Earth, the bottom of the ellipse would be close to the Earth, and the top of the ellipse would be much farther away from the Earth.
2: This is fascinating. It's so interesting. Imagine there's a satellite up above Washington DC. What would happen to that satellite, each of those levels? At the second one that you mentioned, it would stay above Washington. It would almost be like a pin that was stuck on an area, but some of the other ones wouldn't stay above DC. They would start going off in a different direction.
0: With respect to the three orbits, so if you have the fixed place as Washington, D.C., in a low-Earth orbit, the satellite's going to be going around the Earth very quickly, you know, in a, uh, several times a day typically. So the satellite's going to pass over Washington, D.C. At a geosynchronous orbit, the satellite's going to be in an orbit that revolves in conjunction with Washington, D.C. So as the Earth moves, the satellite's going to move at the same point, and it will always be able to look down on Washington D.C. And then, if you look at a highly elliptical orbit, the satellite, when it's, it's so much easier to describe a, a heel with a picture because, <laughs> but I'll try and do it in words. You know, I yeah, have to ask a your challenge <laughs> <laughs> again. I think of maybe a marble with an ellipse. You know, and the ellipse goes around the marble. Well, ellipses are elongated. And at the top of the ellipse, it's going to be able to be looked down on Washington, D.C. The bottom of the ellipse, Washington, D.C. is going to be hidden because it will be, Washington, D.C. will be behind the orbit, so to speak. I never really thought about this. Typically, we have a, a picture to describe it versus words, <laughs> so it's a little bit harder. But I think the two others are e- much easier to visualize with words. So
2: One of the other things that I was thinking about was, What is beyond them in space? Is that just somewhere that we don't go? Or where is the moon in all of this much further away, right? It sounds like the NRO is mainly concerned with being in and around the Earth's atmosphere. Is that right?
0: Well, the satellites are not as far out as the moon, uh geosynchronous orbit is going to put you, if I were correctly, about 12,000 miles out from the Earth. So, they're much farther away from the Earth, but we're not talking distances of days to get out uh, to the Moon, as would have been the case with the Apollo program. So, those orbits are all between here and the Moon, so to speak, if that's the answer to the question that you're looking for.
2: Sure. Just quickly on this before we pivot to something else. Historically, has the NRO been involved in the space program? How much does it work with NASA? Has there been thought since the earlier days that, listen, this is stuff that we want to do in Mars or further out in the galaxy, or or is it very much a geocentric kind of organization?
0: We've had a very good relationship with NASA over the years, and to illustrate this point, let me just share our, the NRO's involvement uh, in the Apollo lunar program. When President Kennedy made the uh, decision and declaration that he wanted to see individuals on the moon before the end of the 1960s, there were huge technical challenges to getting there. And one of the challenges was just how do you get an image of images of the moon to decide where to safely land people? And NASA was grappling with that. The National Reconnaissance Office, because we are a space community, understood that particular problem and, and used some channels to get word back to NASA that uh, we actually had imagery capability that could help them without revealing that we were, at the time, imaging in space. That was highly classified. They were just a small group of people that understood that we had imagery capability from space. And that technology came from that original program I'd mentioned earlier, the SAMOS program, uh, the first effort to develop uh, reconnaissance satellites. That technology was repurposed, given to NASA, they modified it, and they used that, the SAMOS satellite components to help build their lunar orbiter originally the Lunar Orbiter was supposed to be one of two imagery satellites that went to the Moon to find a safe landing spots. There was going to be a second one potentially that after the Lunar Orbiter found provisional spots, the second one would come in at much higher resolution and verify that those spots were adequate for safely landing astronauts on the Moon. And that second system was also would have incorporated NRO technology. In this case, it was the Gamba system, which was our high-resolution imagery system. It had phenomenal capability. Its best imagery allowed us to see objects that were smaller than one foot in size. I mean, we still have not declassified what its best capability is all these many years later. So by, you know, the mid-1960s, we had this phenomenal imagery capability, and NASA needed that, uh, they thought, to be able to uh, image the moon and know where to safely land those astronauts. Uh, So we cooperated. Uh, It turned out that the lunar orbiter system itself, with that borrowed technology from NRO, actually provided perfectly adequate imagery. NASA did not have to go ahead and build the second system. The project, the cover name was Upward at the time using the Gambit uh, technology because they hit a home run with that early NRO technology from the SAMLs program. So we have collaborated historically. And it really goes to show the strength of the National Reconnaissance Office. It has been a technology incubator for now 60 years. Without the NRO, we wouldn't have so many technologies that we're just taking for granted really in, in a way in today's world. You know, just take space imagery as an example. To get from point A to point B anymore, quite often we'll turn on Google Maps as an example and want to look from above to figure out what the terrain looks like. And a lot of that capability comes from the U.S. and the NRO investing in early imagery capability, which has evolved into commercial applications in today's world. Uh, As I mentioned earlier, uh, radar imagery, as an example, uh, there are commercial providers today that understand that sometimes weather and night get in the way of of seeing what's going on on the Earth. Uh, we understood that back in 1964, in December of 64, when we launched our first successful experimental radar imagery uh, capability, and now 50 years later, after more than 50 years, it's becoming a commercial application. So we have invested in some very very significant technologies and there have been some real payoffs. Another technology that we share is mammography of all things. Back in a couple decades ago, there was a working group in the federal government that was looking at how to improve the effectiveness of mammography and and make sure that we were able to more quickly diagnose uh, breast cancer. And one of the key needs in mammography is to understand change to see if there has been a change from one film to the next. Well, what we do in intelligence is we're looking for change. If we image one part of the world and uh, we'll re-image it and and want to see if there's been a change there. And the NRO was able to share algorithms that allow us to uh, look for change, and that's a key component of of mammography. So you know, we've invested very heavily in technologies that are, I'll say, transferable and more importantly, just make a real difference in the way that we live our lives on on a day to day basis. And it goes back to those origins, not just with NASA and the cooperation there, but cooperation in the larger scientific and technological communities.
2: Wow. And one of the other things that I was thinking about was when you were talking about the various orbits that the satellites are in, I mean, (laughs) there's quite literally a lot of moving parts there. It made me think of a classical music orchestra and there's all these different sections and there's all these different individual musicians. Who's conducting the symphony? Who's making sure that everything's coordinated and... You know, I realize that that's the NRO's function, but is this the director or is this someone else or the DNI? Who's making sure that the symphony's in line with internal needs, but also with the needs of the US government?
0: Yeah. Well, let me, I guess, give you a kind of a historical example how the symphony's gotten much bigger over time. So our very first successfully launched reconnaissance satellite, what was the galactic radiation and background satellite in uh, June of 1960, and uh, as the signals collection satellite is quite small, just uh, about 18 inches or so in diameter, so it's a small satellite. It was developed at the Naval Research Laboratory here in the Washington, D.C. area, and just to show you how early it was in the program and how small the symphony was. When it came time to launch the satellite, one of the challenges was to get it from Washington, D.C. down to Cape Canaveral where it needed to be launched. And The program director and a couple of employees, their way to transport it is one of the employees brought a station wagon there to work and they took the small satellite and put it in the back of the privately owned station wagon and drove it down to Cape Canaveral to have it uh, be stacked on a couple of other satellites that were going to be launched. So in the beginning, that symphony was really small. Over time, though, as we've launched more complicated and sophisticated systems, the National Reconnaissance Office has grown in accordance with the more complicated machines that are being put up. In today's world, if you look at the NRO, it's organized so that there are components not only to develop new technology but to continue to improve upon existing systems that are operating and replacement satellites the nro depends heavily on its uh, launch capabilities and launch offices in both vandenberg and at cape canaveral and we have a uh, ground infrastructure in place uh, a few years ago we acknowledged that the nro has uh, ground stations here in the washington dc area and in new Mexico and Denver. We have a presence overseas, so the symphony's gotten much bigger. When it comes to decisions on procuring new systems, that procurement decision is in cooperation with both the intelligence community and Department of Defense. That's no different than it was really from the beginning. The NRO was again established to bring together DOD and intelligence community elements and in the beginning the Director of Central Intelligence and the Secretary of Defense made procurement decisions. In today's world, the depart, uh, the Secretary of Defense and the uh, Director of National Intelligence are involved in approving those uh, procurements as well. Once they're approved, the Director of National Reconnaissance has responsibility for building the systems. and making sure they're launched successfully and then operating them. So because the you, know, you go from a satellite that could be carried in a personal vehicle, that's the one and only time that occurred. <laughs> Today's satellites, which are much more sophisticated, you need a much bigger symphony and there are more people involved. But what's interesting is really the decision-making process is not really any more complicated in a way than it was in the beginning. Was, the, those decisions were always made at the highest level including the president of the United States. And now primarily that structure is the same as it has been in the past.
2: One of the things that I was also going to ask was just briefly, what would be like a typical size for a satellite Are we talking like the size of a human and the size of a bus, the size of an aircraft carrier, or does it wildly vary?
0: Yes, it varies. And, you know, as I, again, I can talk in terms of on the one end, our smallest declassified satellite, which is the grab satellite, really a few inches in diameter to our largest declassified satellite, which is the hexagon satellite, the size of a locomotive or a large school bus. And the reason that the size varies is because the mission varies. A real strength of the National Reconnaissance Office over the years, in my view, in studying its history, is uh, we build satellites appropriate to the mission that needs to be carried out. And in some instances, to solve a hard intelligence problem, a smaller satellite vehicle is going to be perfectly adequate to do that. In other instances, if you have a hard intelligence problem, you're going to need to build a more complicated, sophisticated satellite to gain that intelligence. We don't build just to build, in other words. The National Reconnaissance Office for 60 years has built to address the hardest intelligence problems. Typically, the way that I ascribe this is if you look across the entire history, the National Reconnaissance Office has always been about really bright people taking the best technology and pushing the best technology to solve the hardest intelligence problems. That's how the organization was started, and that's what drives it today. And and I don't think that we've really lost that critical mixture when we look at the NRO.
2: You were talking there about the DNI and the, and the Secretary of Defense. How does that work if you have two different bosses to report to? What's the line of communication or the organizational structure? Does the director of the NRO, does he report to the DNI or to the Secretary of Defense or to both? And what happens if both of them are going in different directions?
0: Well, you know, again, the history hasn't changed much here in a way. Going all the way back to 1965, when the NRO had what was known as its fourth charter, it sort of codified that the Director of National Reconnaissance would report to both, both the head of the intelligence community, which at the time was the director of central intelligence, who was also the director of the central intelligence agency, but in his capacity as the director of central intelligence, and to the secretary of defense. Over the past few years, those relationships have been fine-tuned, but ultimately, the director of national reconnaissance remains the advisor to the DNI on satellite reconnaissance and to the Secretary of Defense, and that historic responsibility has not evolved from the 1960s until today. We look at systems that meet the needs of both the intelligence community and the defense community, and it's not really a question of either or, And, and can we meet either defense needs or intelligence needs, intelligence community needs. Our systems are constructed such that they can meet needs for both communities. And historically, that has been the case. The, I guess the tensions that may have happened historically came from how you go about uh, meeting those needs. And just a very quick example of that would have been the decision to develop the Canon system, the digital imagery system that launched successfully in 1976. There were some competing approaches on how you get What we now call near real time imagery or crisis response imagery. The problem being that with the film return, you didn't often have film coming back quickly enough to deal with a crisis. As an example, we had imagery of Soviet troops on the Czech border in 1968. We didn't get the imagery back from space until the Soviets had invaded Czechoslovakia. So, how do you get good crisis uh, imagery? Digital imagery in the late 60s and early 70s was. uh, nobody was doing that. We invested in a charge-coupled device that allowed us to uh, get that particular imagery, but that had to be built over about a five-year period of time. So the CIA program at NRO was advocating for that approach. The Air Force program was advocating for taking the Gambit system and, and reading the film out on orbit and then transferring the images down. So there was that kind of debate as to what would be the better way to solve the problem. But the problem itself was the same for both the intelligence community and the defense community, both needed near real-time capability. And when there are debates, typically, it's not about who gets what, it's about what is the best way or how do you go about getting capability that meets the the needs of both communities. And there's not that kind of zero-sum game if we give some to defense that the intelligence community loses out. We're trying to build systems that uh, can meet the needs of both communities and do.
2: On the symphony, you mentioned that the symphony's growing bigger and bigger. How has the NRO evolved with the amount of information that's coming in? So I've had some guests on Spycast recently, and they're saying the old problem used to be getting enough information, but the new problem is making sense of the information that we're drowning in. And just thinking about some of the technology you've mentioned, so going from a satellite that may collect a limited amount of film that we could develop by Kodak, and now you've got continuous real-time imagery. Like, I mean, how do you deal with that deluge? Is, is that also a technological response? You develop algorithms that help you make sense of it or give us a sense of how the organization has grown with the just sheer amount of information that's coming in?
0: Well, <laughs> The NRO grows to meet its needs, I guess would be the way to describe that. Still by today's standards, we're not a large organization. The big five, I guess you'd say, we're the smallest by far when it comes to people and so forth. But oh, you're the best funded, is that correct? Uh well we don't talk Are about funding. Fun. Okay, sure. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But we have a very nimble and responsive staffing posture. We've been successful in the past of dealing with this uh, dramatic increase in intelligence. And again, just to share a historical example of this, imagine you know, going, as I mentioned before, from 1,200 linear feet of film to 300,000 linear feet of film. That was within a 12-year period of time, and the NRO was able to handle that uh, dramatic increase in intelligence and process it in a way that it was made available to intelligence analysts who could then use it to provide finished intelligence uh, to U.S. leaders. That's our history of being able to collect more information, figure out how to process that information, and then make it available to our key mission partners, either at NSA, NGA, CIA, or wherever they are within the defense or within the uh, larger communities here that has been a mainstay of the NRO and and actually quite a success of the organization.
2: You mentioned Google earlier, Google Earth. How has the NRO adapted to the increasing capability of private actors or non-government capabilities to capture what used to be Strategic intelligence, Google Earth, like how much did that change the game for the NRO, or or did it not really do that much?
0: Well, I think the NRO has done the wise thing, and that's to embrace uh, commercial capabilities. And oh, I don't remember exactly how many years ago, uh, two or three years ago, the uh, NRO uh, became responsible for commercial uh, imagery and procuring commercial imagery to support uh, the nation's uh, intelligence needs. And the reason was, if they can do it, we should embrace those commercial providers. That's, again, been critical to the success of the NRO. When you look at the development of our systems, we've done it in partnership with key industrial partners. And if they're able to do something and we're able to benefit from it in terms of fulfilling our responsibilities as a as in the intelligence and defense community why we're going to do it. That's not a surprise. That's a historic strength at the NRO. So the short answer is if it's there and we can embrace it, we will, as we have done in the past. Uh, it's about taking, again, emerging capabilities or new capabilities and maximizing them to fulfill our mission. It allows us to do as uh, Dr. Scalise indicated, and, and that's innovate faster.
2: With the satellite business, is it still very much a nation-state business? Are there private satellites or satellites that companies are putting up there? And and how does the NRO deal with that, if there are?
0: Well, again, there are probably better people to speak on this. But, you know, just, I guess, from a personal perspective here, if you look at one of the nation's premier industrial gatherings each year, uh, up until, of course, the pandemic, The National Space Symposium, which is now the International Space Symposium, I remember when I first went 10 or so years ago, there was not as much of a commercial presence there, more of a government presence in some way. Nowadays it's it's much more of a commercial presence. Uh, By far, the commercial space presence is much greater, and that just goes to show you that uh, the uses of space have expanded beyond those for just intelligence purposes. And we can look at various applications that are coming out, uh, getting internet to rural areas, as as an example, and you know using space for investment purposes to try and look at uh, traffic through stores and so forth. There are a lot of different uses of space now that really just didn't exist 10 years ago when I first started going out to a space symposium, as an example. So it's definitely expanding. But like I said, you've probably given a space economist and talk about it in better terms than I could.
2: Are you having any events this year to to celebrate the 60th anniversary? Is there are there particular things that maybe SpyCast listeners can get involved in or can do? Or is there a book you would recommend?
0: Yes. I mean, of course, with the pandemic, things have, we've had to modify our approach to the 60th anniversary. So, As we get closer to the uh, anniversary date on on September uh, 6th, we'll start releasing, as an example, we've identified 60 innovations and 60 innovators over the history of the the NRO that uh, will be available on our website at nro.gov. If you follow our Facebook page, we're already sharing some of those innovations and innovators over the year. That's what we're limited in a way to doing because of the pandemic is more of a virtual approach uh, versus the 50th anniversary where we had some very large public events. Uh, As an example, for the 50th anniversary, we declassified the Gambit Hexagon satellites. We had them on display briefly at the Smithsonian and then moved those uh, vehicles out to the Air Force Museum i anticipate as the pandemic as we move away from the pandemic we will have follow on events that come out of our 60th anniversary activities with respect to declassification and so forth when those occur it'll be limited by how quickly we can move forward from the pandemic so we're depending more on i guess uh, social media and and our webpage than we would have in the past in terms of in person events let me just mention, when we do a major uh, declassification, as an example, we host a public event to announce and release either artifacts or documents or both uh, associated with those declassifications. We will continue to do that in the future as well. We think that's an appropriate model for helping the public understand the importance and significance of these artifacts and programs that we declassify.
2: Where do those events take place?
0: Uh, It varies. Our most recent uh, declassification event occurred at the Southern uh, Flight Museum in Birmingham, Alabama. We declassified an early uh, stealth reconnaissance drone program known as the D21, and the drone is on display at that uh, museum. When we declassified the uh, Gambit and uh, Hexagon vehicles, we held two events at the uh, Air Force Museum in order to share with the public information on those declassifications. Uh, When we declassified our involvement in uh, the early manned orbiting laboratory program that the US Air Force was developing to put their astronauts into space, we held again another event at the US Air Force Museum. It it just kind of happens where we're able to display the artifacts and uh, tell that story if there are artifacts or if there's a relationship to the area. And that's the approach that we'll continue to take for these other major declassifications.
2: At our new location on Font Plaza, we have an amazing new space. So if you're ever looking for a a future location, I'm sure the International Spy Museum would love to be involved.
0: Yeah, we have two artifacts on display there uh, in your museum one from the Hexagon program and uh, one from the Overhead Reconnaissance program, the SR-71 program that the NRO was uh, responsible for in the early days. And the uh, International Spy Museum has been uh, terrific uh, in working with us, and we're continuing to look for those opportunities for sure.
2: (laughs) Just one final question, James. Just for our listeners, some of them may think uh, satellites, nuclear weapons, arms control, that's all... Cold War stuff, the sort of game has changed. Give them a better sense of how the NRO has changed since the Cold War ended. Maybe thinking about, say, after 9 11, the war on terror, some of the other emerging threats or national security trends. Give us just a brief kind of overview of where we are now and where we've been.
0: Yeah, the NRO's greatest asset has always been its people because it's an innovative workforce and. Any set of innovative people are always looking for problems to solve. As the NRO has evolved over 60 years, the problem set has changed a lot. And I mean, as you rightly point out, in the beginning we were focused really on nuclear arms and later it became arms control. And after, uh, probably prior to 9-11, as the nation uh, was involved in the Gulf War, There was an increasing recognition that intelligence can make differences at different levels as well, and that provided an opportunity to rethink the National Reconnaissance Office. uh, How do you support the warfighter better and more directly? And those opportunities have evolved over time where we are able to support the warfighting efforts more directly weapons issues don't go away, they just change. Uh, We move from counting nuclear weapons to trying to identify improvised explosive devices, as an example. And that need for understanding weapons capability, whether it's a nation state actor or a terrorist organization, that's a problem set that we're going to need to focus on. So it's a much more diversified problem set, but it's one that the NRO, its innovative workforce has embraced and continues to embrace and will continue to embrace in the next 60 years ahead because that's what our mission is. It's about solving those hard problems and protecting the uh, national security interests of the United States. That hasn't changed over time, just the problem set has changed over time, and we're still well positioned to address and solve that problem set.
2: Well, thanks ever so much. This has been a fascinating conversation. I've really enjoyed it.
0: You're very welcome. I appreciate the time to meet with you today and, and chat a little bit.
2: Is there anything that you think that's important to discuss that we haven't already covered? We could probably speak for days and, you know,
0: <laughs> we could. I suppose as a historian you're supposed to be objective, but it's a terrific privilege to work for for the National Reconnaissance Office as a CIA officer and understand really 60 years of some challenges, some things that didn't go quite as well as we hope, but mostly by far successes that we can celebrate for success reasons alone, but really have made a a difference in the way that the United States has been able to defend basic principles of democracy and freedom and we continue to do that as we look into the future and celebrate future successes.
2: Well if I had a glass in my hand I would say here's to the next 60 years.
0: <laughs> Thank you. Here, <laughs> here on that for sure.
2: <laughs> well thanks ever so much for your time. The International Spy Museum is a full 501c3 non-profit. If you want to donate to the museum, Or if you're local and would like to volunteer at the museum, please visit our website at spymuseum.org for more information.
1: Hey, listeners.
2: We're always looking for
1: ways to improve the N2K CyberWire network and maintain the intelligence-driven news experience that keeps you in the know on the latest developments in cybersecurity. We've launched our 2024 audience survey and would love for you to take a few minutes to share your feedback. And hey, there's even a chance to win a $100 Amazon gift card if you complete the survey. Visit cyberwire.com survey. That's cyberwire.com survey and share your
0: feedback now.